Okay, here we go. February 10, uh, 2013. Ugh. Get my medicine in the right place. February 10, 2013. Lecture discussion number 98 on the Book of Romans. Okay, uh, uh, last week, uh, very quickly, um, I've started to cover a subject of Noah, and, and because I did it very quickly, it, it is uh, therefore quite shallow. Uh, what I did, shallowly, is that a word? Shallowly? Doubt it. We'll make it one. I presented um, a, the Noah piece last week uh, to the Genesis 3 mystery that is the Romans 5.14 and 1 Timothy 2.14 subject. In other words, Genesis 3 is a mystery. What happened there is really difficult to understand. It takes a lot of time and, and meditation and study. And, and you add Romans 5.14, that's how we got back there, and 1 Timothy 2.14 to help you understand the Genesis 3 mystery. In other words, again, there's a great mystery, perhaps the second most difficult in all of Scripture to understand. That's Adam and Eve and Satan. What happened between and the angelic realm? What happened in that uh, in that particular event, uh, second most difficult to understand in all the scripture, only surpassed by the virgin birth, which is the mystery of godliness. OK, but uh, so between Genesis 2, 8 and Genesis 3, 24, this is amazing amount of information. And most don't even realize how much information is there. But you have to approach it as if it is a, like a puzzle, because that's exactly what it is. It's a crime scene. A crime is committed, and there's a trial, and there's a prosecution, and then there's sentencing, and then there's the uh, the response uh, of the defendants to the sentencing, and whether or not the the defendants confessed, or whether or not they um, they they did otherwise, and all of this stuff is there. It's the question, and let me put it on the board here, just as as best I can. Genesis two eight to three twenty four ends up eventually becoming. Uh, solved by knowing that this is the pinnacle or the acme, if you will, or the apex. And just take it one at a time because it deserves to be. It's the question of behold the man. And I didn't do justice to behold, did I? Should have yelled it out again. Has become. These are all parts. Behold the man has become like Boy, right there, just doing those, just taking those five um, or the four. Behold, the man has become like. You spend your years just dealing with this word behold. Why he puts it where he puts it in the Bible. What he's trying to say when he says it. Those are special places, just accumulating all the beholds. If you got all the beholds together, you'd have an incredible story right there. But the man, not the woman, not the angels, not Satan, it's the man has become, which meant that he has transitioned to like one of us. To know. Good. Probably the most difficult thing for Bible students today is to define good. They don't get it right. They're constantly defining good as bad and bad is good. Completely the opposite. Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good from evil. Just take them one at a time until you understand that sentence. Off you go into a world of understanding in the Bible that is just amazing. Each one of those words, every single word brings with it a mountain of more questions, doors to open, questions to ask. And we have no time uh, to delve comprehensively into the one of us. What is the one of us? What's that subject? That's the triune nature of God. That's right. We don't have time to delve into that. That's that's a lifetime right there. Um, so the triunity of the Godhood or the beholds or the has become. Uh, I'm pretty much just sticking to the like, the man, no good from and evil. That's what I've focused on the last uh, couple of weeks. I'd love to do the has become, but it's just uh, 
uh, too much to ask uh, for our small little operation to, to get through all of that. And obviously, any attempt on Genesis 3.22 that includes all of these uh, that I just put on the board here can't succeed in the short time that we're going to try or that we're going to assign to it. So uh, once again, the disclaimer here, I'm admitting that the product that I'm putting on the table today is insufficient. It's not complete. It's not even close. And that's always the case, by the way, and you have to get used to it. There's just volumes of material to get through to study Genesis 3. 22. Okay. Up to today, the focus has been on the word like, which uh, is the typology of Adam. And I've asked the question, how is it that, how exactly is it that Adam is a type of Jesus Christ? How is it, what is the totality, what is the limit, if there is a limit to it, and there is, but what is the totality of his typology, his portrait, if you will, his prophecy that he is of Jesus Christ? And he's the first one in all of Scripture to be assigned this. He's the first one declared to be a type of Christ. He's the first mention, if you will, of like. And every time you find a, ver- a verse in the Bible um, or a, or a um, topic in the Bible, pay attention to the first time it shows up. Adam is called, uh, is declared like one of us. So he is the first mention of it. Moses is the second, Deuteronomy 18.15. There are others that are types of Christ in the Old Testament, Joseph being the most um, most common that people bring up, and I believe it's uh, correct to do so. But he is not openly declared, certainly not declared in the New Testament, uh, like Adam is, or in Deuteronomy 18.15, like Moses is. And so obviously, Adam and Moses, you've got to put them side by side. I, I do it this way, as you know, I did it, said this last week. Numbers 20, or the week before that, Numbers 20 is equal to Genesis 3. If you look at the two of those uh, side by side, uh, you'll make a lot of headway. Then uh, David, the shepherd king, who has a heart like God's, after God's own heart. 1 Samuel 13, 14. He gets added in here. So I got Adam, Moses, now David. I got the three of them. And when we do that, we have to look at 2 Samuel 24. What is 2 Samuel 24? Do you remember? 2 Samuel 24 is where David decides he's going to count the people. And he's going to count the people um, without the atonement money. It's in violation of Exodus 30, 11 through 12. And so that's what he's going to do. And then also we have, with regard to David, we have to look at 2 Samuel 11 and 12, the murder of Uriah. So I'm going to add now, Numbers 20 equals Genesis 3, equals uh, the atonement money, equals, or the census, let me write census down for you. And Uriah, Bathsheba, Nathan. So, 2 Samuel 11 and 12, the murder of Uriah, the rape of Bathsheba, the prophecy of Nathan, the substitutionary death of the firstborn son, and then the kingship of Solomon. So you see the firstborn son is is the first advent of Christ, and the kingship of Solomon, the second um, advent of Christ, uh, back to back there in that passage in uh, 2 Samuel 12. And that is, uh, as I've said many times, is an extraordinary tribute to Bathsheba. That she has a son that is a type of of coming of Christ as as the uh, Savior, substitute for sin, the sacrifice for sin. And she has a son immediately following that is uh, representative of the rulership of Christ or the kingship. So that is an extraordinary tribute. Uh, She didn't get that because she was guilty of something much like uh, Hollywood has portrayed her to be, some kind of adulteress. She was a raped virgin, a young girl. All of those subjects, Numbers 20, where uh, Moses and Aaron decide to, uh, uh, Moses decides to strike the rock twice in disobedience, and he and Aaron, if you've read my opinions or listened to them on it, I think they did that purposely. Uh, They had a plan that God did not allow to come to fruition. 
But where they do that, and then Genesis 3, where Adam is facing the dilemma that Eve brings to him, and then now uh, uh, David uh, dealing with uh, Bathsheba and the, sentence, uh, the census and Nathan and the you know, murder of Uriah and all of that, they all fit together here. And all of those are subjects that you should have some working knowledge of. Hopefully you've got them all in your basket and you're ready to go. That was my plan all along. You think that I don't plan all of this. I really kind of do. It doesn't always follow that uh, I go uh, where I want to go quickly. But I do know that in order to get you to understand Genesis 3, you have to have an understanding of David and Bathsheba. That's correct. Or David and the census. That's correct. You also have to have Saul. That is correct. So now we're coming to Noah. So first I got, I'm sorry, I got it out of order here on the board. I got Adam. At Genesis 3, I'm trying to figure out what happened to Genesis 3. Well, then I go, to help me do that, I go find the other person who's defined as like, and that's Moses. So I get him. So now i got two likes to work from. And then I go find David, who has a heart after God's, or like God. So now i got the three of them. And why do I pick Numbers 20 and the census and Uriah, Bathsheba, and Nathan? Why did I do that? Now I'm going to add Noah. Here comes Noah. All of that to help me figure out what's happening at Genesis 2, 8 to 3, 24. I hope that makes sense. Okay, got to make sure I'm at the right page here. I get off script occasionally. Okay. Now I skipped a page. No, I didn't. Noah is in this because he shares with Adam a characteristic, lots of characteristics. We're going to get into that. Last week I told you the, well, the singular one that's very important is that the animals are brought to both David, I'm sorry, both uh, Noah and to Adam. Both of them, they're the two men in all of Scripture who have animals brought to them in large numbers, that God has done that. Um, one to name them, the other to, to place them in the ark so that they are saved, right? I always ask the question, were they contaminated or uncontaminated animals that Noah got? Anyway, that starts you uh, with regard to Adam. But the ark is covered inside and out with blood. So I have Noah, and I've got these animals, and then I have blood that is covering the ark. Now, the word inside and out, the word used in Genesis uh, 6.14 is translated atonement, I'm sorry, translated pitch in almost all of your Bibles, but you should cross that out. You should write, because it's actually the word for atonement or blood atonement. And it is not incorrect to say that the ark is covered inside and outside with blood. Look up the word, kafar. So notice now immediately that I have blood coverings of Noah, inside and out, two coverings, right? Covering the ark. Who else has blood covering? Adam. Put it more correctly, I have the blood coverings of Genesis 3 and the blood coverings of Genesis 6. So we can begin to understand what's happening at Genesis 3.21 now, because we have the blood coverings of Noah at Genesis 6.12. Genesis 3.21. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made coverings of skin and clothed them, the blood coverings of Adam. Cover the inside and the outside with blood, the blood coverings of Noah. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with blood. Those two contain information that helps you understand the other one. Does that make sense? And once you, once you begin to understand the principle of gather and compare, you will never be able to pass by a verse again without asking what you should always ask. And that is, where and what to does this verse directly connect it? What's that? No, no, no. Just any verse. The principle of any verse. You find a verse in the Bible, but you're right. Huh? Yeah, yes, I must have a... I, if I don't have it, I should look for it, huh? You will never necessarily find everything perfectly. 
but you'll find pieces that you add together of each one. And, and again, I get from, from uh, Troy's right, I get from Adam to Moses because of the like. I get from Adam to Moses to David because of the like. I get from Adam to Noah because of the animals and the blood coverings immediately. And I'll, I'll add some more in here. And there's lots of it. Uh, it's fascinating to look at Moses. Uh, Arthur Pink listed 300 things the back of one of his books that he saw in Moses as a type of Christ. There's easily that many for Adam. Most don't uh, ever take the time to look at it. But again, once you understand the principle of finding a verse and looking for where it connects, uh, to put it more better, find the verse and then ask, what's immediately adjacent to this verse in the puzzle? What's the piece that fits next to it? That piece may be hundreds of pages away, but you've got your piece and you put it down on the table and you go find the piece that connects to it. And, and you look at those. You try to do that every time. You approach this as as an infinite jigsaw puzzle. And how much are you going to accumulate or put together? You're going to get a little tiny bit. That's all we get. Nobody gets very big. And then one guy might might get one piece and you might get a little piece. And, and your piece is wrong because you beat your pieces in there to fit each other and you put them on a sawzall or a bandsaw and you cut them different and you did whatever you could to make them go there. And so you're all wrong anyway. But you're doing, you're trying. It's all we can do, right? Some of you have come to me already and have begun to investigate the theme of Numbers 20, 2 Samuel 24, and Genesis 3. Noticing that they're all those are renowned. There's a renowned place for David, 2 Samuel 24. Most people will tell you it's the Bathsheba. I put Bathsheba in because it's so badly mangled. But if I had to pick between 2 Samuel 24 and uh, and uh, Bathsheba and Uriah and Nathan, I would pick 2 Samuel 24. But all three of these, David's 2 Samuel 24, Adam's Genesis 3, and Moses' Numbers 20, have a theme and they're renowned. They're universally identified as the same for each man. Moses has his, Numbers 20. Adam has his, Genesis 3. And David has his, Second uh, Samuel 24. And so, as Troy pointed out, well, then Noah has to have one of these, too. Who's ahead of me right now? What is... Numbers 20, renowned for with regard to Moses. What's it called? If you went to seminary, they would tell you something about it. They would be wrong, by the way. But that's another story. Genesis 3 is also called this about Adam and, and David's census. All three of those are called their places of great failure. By the way, they might have started out as failure, but they became great triumphs for all of those men. Noah also has one of those. Where is it? What's that? Yes, very good. Ham. It's exactly where we're headed. So these four, it's logical it would follow that Noah would have his, and he does. It's Genesis 9, 20 through 29. It's called the mystery of the curse of Canaan. And thus we have four of these so far, by the way. We're going to have a lot more. Let me put them on the board. Genesis 3 is Adam's disobedience. Uh, you'll see it as disobedience and nakedness. Okay? And then Numbers 20 is Moses. It's always, by the way, called failure. And I'll, I'll put failure in in quotation marks, because that's what they call it. That's not what really happened there. Uh, Numbers 20 is Moses, where he and Aaron uh, made a decision. They turned in their resignations, and God refused to accept them, by the way. But it's called Moses' disobedience, or failure. He wasn't allowed to go into the promised land. By the way, he wasn't supposed to go in the promised land. Um, David's is 2 Samuel 24. It's his disobedience. 
where he decides that he is going to count the people without the blood. Counting the people is obviously a, uh, a symbol for something. If you, you can't count the people without blood. So what's the counting? What does it reflect? What's it a symbol for? Salvation. I can't be saved without blood. That's, that's David's great failure, they will call it. We'll have to get into it, won't we? By the way, he has, uh, he has three decisions that he has, gets to make. It's really a wonderful lesson. Uh, and this is, oops, I wrote Noah. Uh-huh. And then Noah has his supposed failure at Genesis 9. Noah's failure. What does Noah do there? By the way, it's not how you start, it's how you finish, right? Every one of those men finished fantastic. That's why it's hard for me to call it a failure when you finish like they did. We should all finish. Uh, um, just as an aside, Abraham has a great failure too, um, supposedly. Samson, Saul, and we'll have to get into all of those at some point. I, I don't know that I'll have time, but I didn't want you to think that I didn't know about them. Anyway, here we go to uh, Genesis. Uh, Saul has, of course, the witch of Endor, which we did, uh, who turns out to be an extraordinary person, if you remember that. Let's go to Genesis 9. 18 through 24, and read it. This is the comparison that you make. Once you get Adam's Genesis 3, and you find yourself at Moses' Numbers uh, 20, and you go to David's uh, 2 Samuel 24, now we're at Genesis 9. We have these four pieces to help us understand what? What's the point? What are we doing? We're trying to figure out what happened at Genesis 3. That's what we're doing. You take on Genesis 3 without these other pieces, you're not going to figure it out. So if you buy a commentary, and the commentary says, here's what's happening in Genesis 3, and it's missing Moses, David, and Noah, then they're not going to figure it out right. They're going to have errors all over it. They have one piece. It is it is the blind man and the elephant, right? They've got the one piece. And that's all they've got, and they think the elephant is a snake. Because they got all of its trunk or its tail or whatever they got. They have no idea what the elephant is because they didn't get the other pieces. And that's what I'm trying to get you to avoid doing as you study the Bible. Okay, here we go. The mystery of the curse of Canaan. While I'm reading this, what should you be doing? Figuring out how it helps you with Genesis 3. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham, the father of Canaan. Notice uh, you might have a, a was in italics. Was isn't in the text because Ham is identified. Think of him this way. He has, all of us have a little tag on our shirt. Uh, Janie Wayne. Uh, whatever. Supper day. Fast Bill. Bill the cow. I should point out to the internet people, Bill the cow has survived a very, very uh, uh, difficult. He hit the ground at 120 miles an hour in a plane crash, for those of you who might have seen it on the internet. And he went through the windshield from the back of the plane past the pilot and the man sitting in the other seat. And he is uh, severely injured, but he is doing fine. And he will make it, and he has a story to tell. So for those of you on the Internet, that's what that need to point that out, since I brought him up here arbitrarily. And I also want you to know that I was right about the Super Bowl one more time. That's 13 out of 15. I need to get that in the record. Okay. Ham has a, Ham has a title. His title is the father of Canaan. 
That's very important. So, now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham, the father of Canaan. Get rid of the was. It's an italic, italics. It keeps you from realizing that this is his title. This is on his name tag. These three, the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer. You think that's an arbitrary, just throughout, going to be a farmer. And he planted a vineyard. So what's he doing? He's planting things. He might be what? What else could we call him instead of farmer? How about gardener? And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine. (coughs) So now he's a chemist, right? And was drunk, and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, and here's his title again, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment laid it on both their shoulders and went backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces turned away and they did not see their father's nakedness. So, Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed, Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brother. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. What's implied right there? Not the God of Canaan. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, may, and may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, so all of the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So, this a lot of times is portrayed in an odd way, when I read that, I think he cursed Canaan and died. They're back to back. And we'll have to get into that in a minute. Now, hopefully, nakedness leaps off the page for you, as does farmer and the fruit, uh, the, the wine, I, I'm sorry, the uncovered, the garment, the awoke, and the curse. Hope that leaps off the page for you, because if I said to you, gardener, fruit, garment, nakedness, awoke and curse, who am I talking about? Adam. Genesis 3. It's almost the same, isn't it? And I want you to rush back to Genesis 3 and start comparing them, where Adam uh, uh, has this nakedness, the garment, a fruit, a curse of Satan, a gardener, and he's asleep. Again, Noah and Adam have very many elements that correspond. Some are exactly the same. Do you think that's a coincidence? There are no coincidences in Scripture. So if you are trying to figure out Adam at Genesis 3 without Noah at Genesis 9, not going to happen. You're going to go away like so many people out there in the world today that think your Bible is a book of simple fables when in fact it is extraordinary. It is the wisdom of God put before us. There's nothing simple about it and there's nothing mythological about it and there is no fable in it. And it's because people don't think. What's the word I want for people? People are stupid and willfully stupid. And they make, they make, they say stupid things. John Wayne. I've been quoting John Wayne. Life is hard. It's a whole lot harder if you're stupid. That applies to Genesis 3 more than any other scripture 
passage, I think, in, in the Bible. I just, I so rare I find anybody that has, has figured out Genesis 3 even close. That I, when I do find them, I just rejoice. Again, M.R. Dahan, Ada Ruth Habershon. But Adam and Noah have things that are exact. Nakedness is one of them. Fruitful and multiply is one of them. Uh, all of these things, the garment, the covering, the, the asleep, if you will. And obviously, we can now begin to properly define nakedness. If you remember a few weeks ago, the key to that whole story I said to you, well, I'll get to that in a minute, but is in Adam and Eve is this question that is asked by God of him. It's one of the questions that God asked. But we can begin to properly define nakedness by comparing and superimposing Genesis 3 onto Genesis 9 and just lay them on top of each other. I submit that the two passages are fastened together and it's a grave error to separate them. And more obviously, it seems to me that this repeated phrase is the key phrase, very important. Ham, the father of Canaan. He's identified twice. Specifically, purposely, pointedly, twice declared by the Holy Spirit to be the father of Canaan. And so i got to ask, why is Ham so identified? It's almost like he's branded with it. This is him forever. Every time for the rest of eternity we see Ham, we go, oh, Ham, the father of Canaan. Boom. On his forehead. Because you see, why is Canaan? That doesn't seem to make sense. It does make sense when you understand it, but for a first time through, you might go, wait a minute. Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. So the younger son, Ham, did something to him, and he cursed the grandson. That's not right, is it? Yeah, that's right. Why is Canaan, the grandson of Noah, the one whom is cursed, or it's called the why Canaan uh, question. What exactly did Ham do in that tent? Because let me read it again. Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. What did he do to Noah in that tent? He did something. What? Those of you who have been attending Cliffside for many, many years, you know my position on this matter. You know why he's cursed, at least, because I'll help you here really fast. For those who think I never answer questions, especially the Internet folks, get to them in a minute too. Canaan is contaminated. Ham is not. Cain is contaminated because the wife of Ham is contaminated. More on that later. I just want you to notice that I have a contaminated wife in Genesis 9. She's not mentioned, but she's there. That is why he's called Ham, the father of Canaan. Canaan's contaminated through the contaminated wife. So, I want you to notice, I'm going to change contaminated wife of Ham to poisoned wife of Ham. If that makes it more clear. Both Genesis 3 and Genesis 9, both of them, both, both sections, both passages, have a poisoned wife as a prominent characteristic. One not mentioned, but obviously inferred. Now, what's to be learned from this role of Ham, his choosing of his wife and the cursing of his son? And so, if I got this characteristic of Ham... He's going to have correspondence to Genesis 3. The seed of Ham is cursed. Does that help you? Who does Ham correspond to in Genesis 3? Who has a cursed seed as well? Satan does. Who has a contaminated seed? Satan does. Again, what happened in the tent? Whatever it was, it results in the curse of the contaminated seed of Ham. And it can't be trivial. It can't be. 
It's got to be profoundly evil because of its relationship to Genesis 3. And Canaan must have been involved somehow. By the way, let's just talk about that a second. How old's Noah? I made sure that I put that out there for you. How old's Noah? Give me the, the minimum he can be. At a minimum, he's in his 600s, right? Okay? Yeah, yeah, exactly right, Troy, for the Internet people. He grows a vineyard. I have that question here on the next page. So Troy is ahead of me. But the point of it is, he's, he's got to, he gets off the ark. He's at least 600. How old's Canaan? How old's Ham? What, did you think that Ham was 15 when he got on the ark? Noah just said, well, I'll wait until I'm a little older to have kids. How old do you think Ham? How old can Ham be? If it's a younger son, so let's say he has children at 15. How old Shem? 585. These are not children. So how old's Canaan? A grandson. 550? Got to figure that out. What does Canaan look like? Look like all the other kids in school? I don't think so. I think it's obvious that Canaan is contaminated. And everybody knows it. Anyway, I'm... Being silly, obviously you have 600 years when they get off the ark and we have a period of time where these kids are born. So Canaan could be anywhere from zero to a hundred. We don't know. Uh, Yes. Oh, no, no, it has nothing. I know the the Baptists uh, have some very, very bad ideas on Genesis 9. They really do, and bless their hearts, they try so hard on things, and they get this completely screwed up. Again, they get it in trouble. I shouldn't say that, should I? They get it in trouble because they don't take it back to Genesis 3. If they do that, they don't bring in Numbers 20, and they don't bring in Second Samuel 24. Anyway, Noah awoke, and as soon as he woke, let me read it again, he awoke from his wine, and what? What's it say? He knew. As soon as he woke up from his wine, I will assume that some of you have had the experience of waking up from your wine. And I would suggest to you that you don't know very much for a few minutes at least. Maybe a couple of hours. Like where you are. But Noah knew instantly what had been done to him. He also knew who had done it. How did Noah know? How did he know what had been done to him? And how did he know who it was? Because he doesn't wake up when he's being covered by Shem and Japheth. He wakes up afterwards. And he knows that it's Ham and he curses Canaan. So, I asked some questions now. So, just how drunk is Noah? What evidence existed that he could come out of a drunken stupor, so to speak, and figure out something has happened to me. It's Ham, and I'm cursing the grandson. It was maybe 30. Maybe 50. Could be as much as 100. We'll get to that in a minute. So how drunk was he? And as Troy pointed out, how long does it take to plant a vineyard? How many vineyards you got to plant before you get one that's got grapes? Okay? And then you got to do what? You got to harvest the grapes. And then what do you got to do? You got to pound the grapes into a substance. You got to get them fermented. How long before you got to 
some wine. And by the way, how good a winemaker do you think Noah was? This is a guy that builds an aircraft carrier essentially by himself. How, how good a winemaker? You think he could make a pretty good keg? I think he could. This is a this is a 600 plus year old man, and he is a very very wise man. He made some really good wine. Well, here's another question: Did he intend to get drunk? How much wine did he drink? How long did he wait before he drank his wine? Was he a connoisseur? Okay. Let me throw this out because this is uh, uh, the question that comes afterwards has to be dealt with. Had Noah been drugged, somebody spiked the wine. Somebody know he's going to drink the wine. Somebody get to the wine. Slip a little Mickey in his wine. Is this an act of opportunity or is this an act of premeditated thought? That must be decided. If it's premeditated, let me get this on the table. How long had Adam and Canaan planned this? I would say that Adam and Canaan, uh, Adam, or I'm sorry, Adam, I said Adam. Golly, i got to get fixed up. If this is premeditation, how long had Ham and Canaan planned it? I'm going to say to you that Ham had been planning it for a long time. How long to make wine again? How long did they wait before they struck? And that takes me back to Genesis 3 because I want to know how long did Satan wait until he hit the woman? Because Ham and Satan are going to have a relationship. They're going to, they're going to act in a very similar way. Whatever I decide of Satan in Genesis 3, i got to bring it back and apply it to Ham in Genesis 9. Hopefully, you follow that. you got to do that. And then, why? Why are they doing it? What is their motive here? got to have motive. What did they gain from this? And notice that as soon as, as he comes out of the tent, he tells the other two brothers, where were they? Were they standing there by the tent? You see, the same issue comes up again. Were the two brothers standing there by the tent while Ham enters the tent and does whatever he does, and they do nothing to stop him? Because that's what they say about who in Genesis 3. Adam, does that make sense? No, it doesn't make sense. They would have stopped him. Just like Adam would have stopped Eve. Same thing. is It's the same sentence. It's the same thing you can figure out now where Eve was with respect to Adam now, and not make that error. But what is the motive of Ham? Motive has got to be established. Noah is obviously in a deep sleep, isn't he? Either his singular doing or he had help. And Adam was in a deep sleep placed there by God. That's not to be missed. Now let's throw some more obvious questions on the fire here. Everyone likes more questions. My mail that I get, I get lots of, it's filled with requests from all of you guys over, all over the internet world and you, you usually goes like this. Hey weird person, can you ask more questions in your lecture, please? You're not asking us enough questions. Could you fit in some more questions? Please more questions. Uh, I suspect sarcasm. But uh, I will comply because I want everybody to be happy. Why did Shem and Japheth walk backwards and cover Noah? And again, notice that Ham told them what was in the tent. So I'm going to tell you it's more likely like this. I have a tent. I have a man passed out in the tent. I have a man entered the tent. I have a man leave the tent and go and tell two other men what's in the tent. They go to the tent and they cover the man in the tent by walking backwards. I want you to know, notice that told. That told process is very important because that's key 
what would make the man who did whatever he did in the tent go back and tell the other two men that the man in the tent is what? Naked. So the question is, and if I got these two men on the witness, I brought them in for questioning, I would ask them, okay, Shem and Japheth, who told you that Noah was naked? Does that ring a bell? Does it? Where else in the Bible is that? Genesis 3. That's the great question of Genesis 3. Who, Genesis 3.11, who told you that you were naked? Same questions right here. It's identical. At Genesis 3, an act of disobedience occurs. The woman is deceived into poisoning herself and is covered with fig leaves, eventually covered with innocent blood. At Genesis 9, Noah poisons himself and is covered by Shem and Japheth who walk backwards. Essentially, we can see both of these events as, as a crime, if you will. As, uh, that's the way I like to do it. It helps me the most as crime scenes. A criminal act is perpetrated in both places. It's a who done it. It's why. It's why, what and how and, and, and all of that. And Satan is cursed for his role at Genesis 3 and Canaan is cursed for his role at Genesis 9. Okay. So I got, hey, listen, if I were a police officer and I had these two cases, I'd look at them and say, wait a minute. I got, this is the same. What, did they read the same book? Okay, here's a, 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 the answer to the easy question. Why did Shem and Japheth walk backwards? They didn't want to see. That's the end of the easy part. They knew what was in there, and they didn't want to see it. They didn't want to see what? How did they know it was in there, by the way? They were told. And Noah didn't need to be told. He knew immediately what had happened and who did it. Ham had no issue with seeing, if you will, the nakedness of his father. And now we're headed to Leviticus 18, 6 through 18. I should, I got a few minutes. I'll just, I'll just put it on the table for you so you know it's there. Yeah, this is where you, this is your homework. Read Leviticus 18. And then read it 15 more times. Just so you understand it. This is where nakedness is defined, by the way, with regard to Genesis 9. What's the obvious question then? Is that the same definition in Genesis 3? Good. None of you shall approach, uh, 18.6 of Leviticus, none of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. The nakedness of your father, the nakedness of your mother, you shall not uncover. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. Now, it goes on. It goes all the way. It goes for another ten verses. Maybe fifteen. What Ham did is eventually becomes Leviticus 18, 6 through 18. And it's a violation of an ordinance of God. It's a statute that God gives Israel. And God is referencing what happened at Genesis 9 when he gives this ordinance, this statute, to Israel at Leviticus 18, 6 through what? 20, let me get it right, through 30. He instructs the nation of Israel, do not do what the Canaanites do. He specifically says... Uh, According to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwelt, you shall not do according to the doings of the land of Canaan. Canaan went on, whatever happened in this tent, Canaan went on doing it. And he told them, don't. Canaan is a whole nation now, not just a person, but he's also a person. Don't do what Canaan did. It's an abomination. Do not uncover the nakedness of your father or anyone who is a direct relation to you. Father, mother, aunt, uncle, sister, daughter, sister-in-law, daughter-in-law, brother. It covers everybody. Don't uncover their nakedness. It is an abomination. You want to? Think, by the way, is it against the law to do it in the United States today? Yes, it is. Well, that's changing. We're going to change that. You just wait and watch. 
So you can read, I got, it's really fascinating to me, the study Bible that I have that I argue with all the time. The, you read the Bible part and don't pay attention to the, um, to the commentary. Uh, in Genesis, the, the, whoever did the commentary on Leviticus 18 figured out what uncover his nakedness is. Unfortunately, he did not tell the guy who wrote the commentary in Genesis 9. Because the guy in Genesis 9, he has no idea what it is. He, he punts. I, I, I don't have any idea. It's pretty much what he says. And then, if it's the same guy, he should at least read what he wrote. If you read Leviticus 18, it becomes clear that nakedness, uncovering of nakedness is an idiom. It's a euphemism. It is how they say something about what abominations the Canaanites were doing. It's uh, something that the Canaanites did as a common, acceptable behavior, practice, custom. And God says it's defiling. It's wicked. And there's your first clue is what may have taken place in that tent. It's defiling it's wicked. It's an abomination. It cannot be done if you are a follower of God. Shem is a follower. Japheth is a follower. Canaan, clearly not. I can tell you why they covered him. That's pretty obvious why they covered him. I probably will tell you why they covered him not over the internet. I will. You'll have to wait. But why did they do it? What's the motive? What was the point? Satan in Genesis 3, it kind of makes easy sense, or some sense. He wanted to kill the woman. He wanted to make sure she died first physically. And then while he had her in a panic of dying physically, he's going to run her over to the other tree and get her to die Spiritually, are you holding up a hand telling me I'm out of time? Well, that's too bad. What was Ham doing? If Satan's trying to kill the woman physically and eternally. What was Ham doing? This event is the last thing said of Noah before he dies. He lives to 950 years. So how old was he when it happened? 350 or 650? 625? Whatever. You got over 300 years passed before he dies. Abraham knows Noah. Talks to him. Nothing is recorded of Noah after what happened in this tent. These are pretty much Noah's last words. The last thing he does in Scripture is curse Canaan and bless him and Japheth. Curse and blessing. Same as Genesis 3. Okay? Let's shut it down right there before I get in trouble.